Let's turn to Romans chapter 12. We'll start our reading at verse 9. Romans 12, 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another. With brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence or slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfast in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Lord, these are just a few of the things that should distinguish us from the world. Lord, I pray that today you'll help us understand what each one of these phrases means. And Lord, not just understand them, but God, because we understand them, help us to apply them. Lord, may we use this standard, not the world's, not our own opinions, but God, may we use this standard to evaluate our Christian life. We ask the Holy Spirit to be present with us. God, we need the Holy Spirit. We acknowledge that he is our teacher, and he is the one who illuminates us, and he brings things to our remembrance that we need to to think and ponder on. And so today, Lord, we are not going through a mechanical exercise, not an academic exercise, lecture. God, this is a spiritual time where your living, breathing word needs to minister to our hearts. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, you know, Caleb, uh, Caleb shared that, um, that we're all sort of in different places in, in our walk and different things that we're facing. And, um, I look around, and I know all of you. That's the beautiful thing about a small church, is I know every one of you, and I pray for every one of you, and I know a little bit about your life, um, probably more than you want me to know. I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> but I, I know those struggles that everyone faces, um, and I'm glad that we don't always just put on a facade when we walk through the doors of this church. Um, I greeted a sister this morning, and I said, how are you? And she says, I don't know, pretty much. And I thought, well, can I pray for you? And she says, no, it's just life. And I said, I I relate. I know exactly what you mean. Um, I've got my own struggles. I've got my own problems. (laughs) So I I know what it's like. You know, we're we're all here. Uh, And I've already been, I wouldn't give up this, this hour. This, these two hours for anything else in the week. Because I, I came in with my tail between my legs. <laughs> and as soon as, uh, as soon as Rick started teaching the Sunday school, I, I got into God's Word. I listened to his heart and, and the conversation that we had with each other. And it just, it just lifted me. 
and I hope um, this hour does the, has the same effect on y'all that um, that we're we're centering ourselves around God's word, and He's given us. And Caleb robbed my thunder. I, I wanted to make sure that that on his app on that phone that it really said that. But I thought I came up with a clever title for my sermon: <laughs> "The Marks of a Christian Life." But uh, apparently, somebody already tagged that. But that this really. You remember that book, Ron? I don't even remember who wrote it, but you could probably tell me the Nine Marks. Do you know that book? Oh, okay. He's not familiar with it. But there was this book going around that was really, really popular, and it was called Nine Marks. And it was—it's a good book. In fact, I used it a lot when I wrote up our church vision and purpose statement because it really outlines nine marks that a church should look for and to shoot for. But in this passage, we are given marks or goals for the Christian life. These are not laws in the sense that that we've got to be under a yoke of bondage. That, that's a foreign concept of the New Testament. But we are under the royal law of liberty. It's this Holy Spirit that has liberated us to live out the righteousness of the law. And these are, these are commands here. So it, it is a law in that sense. Now, the Mosaic Law had 613 specific injunctions. Whoa! Barbara goes, whoo! Yeah, wow! Cursed is everyone who does not continue in everything written in the book of the law to do them. That's a weighty yoke to put on anybody. And Christ said, Come unto me, all you that labor and heavier laden, and I will put my yoke on you. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And so when Christ's law and his yoke is on us, he doesn't abrogate the law. He says, I will fulfill the law within you. And so as we look at the laws of the New Testament, don't ever assume that this is something that we do in our flesh or we do in our strength. We do it under submission and confession to the Holy Spirit. I quoted a little bit of Galatians, and I'll just finish that passage. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things written in the book of the law to do them. But no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident. For the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. In order that, here's the purpose, in order that the blessings of Abraham might come on us through faith, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So we fulfill the demands of the law through the enablement and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. That is the new covenant. I will put my spirit within you. I will write my laws on your heart. So this can be a gauge for you and I of how well we are walking in the spirit and saying, Lord, I need to submit these areas of my life to the power of the Holy Spirit. The law of the new covenant is profoundly different. Now, I'm reading through the book of Deuteronomy right now in my devotions, and I'm I'm, I'm impressed 
with the with the way that the Mosaic law was written. In in chapter ten, I think it's verse eleven, maybe I'm not sure, but God pretty much says, "There's one thing that I require of you, and really it is to walk by faith." It doesn't say that explicitly, but it says that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is what God requires. And so even in the Old Testament law, it was all about grace. It was all about a relationship with God. But Jesus, when he came, he instituted a new covenant. And he gave a new law. And that new law was the law of love. When you and I are loving one another, we are fulfilling all the demands of the law. Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. Now that was not new in the essence that the Old Testament didn't say that. The Old Testament said to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And in Leviticus 18, it says, love your neighbors yourself. So in what essence was this a new law? Then he gets this little phrase, as I have loved you. That's how this law is new. The standard is so high, it is so impossible, that we come to Christ and we say, Lord, I can't do it. And I fall on my face and I put my faith in Jesus Christ. And I want you now to fulfill this royal law within me. And so, the law has not been abolished in that sense, but we are under a new commandment. New in its essence. New in its source. New in the way that it regenerates you and I so that we can live above the plane of this world. Romans 8, chapter 2 says this, For the law of the spirit of life. That's the law that you and I are now under. We are under the law of the spirit of life. That genitive phrase actually has the idea of the law which brings life. The principle. The law of the spirit of life, what has it done? It has made me free from the law. And then that law is described as the law of death and condemnation. That was the Old Testament. That was the law. The the, the spirit of life. That's that's the gospel. That is the good news. That Jesus died for sinners. And if I will put my faith in him, I am alive in Christ. It's made me free from that old law that I never could fulfill. When Christ came, this is what he brought us. And Paul, I think, now that he's getting very practical about the mercies of God and how we present ourselves as living sacrifices... And now in verses 9 to the end of the chapter, he says, this is how we live out the Christian life. And I've got four marks for us to evaluate how we're doing this morning. The first mark and the most foremost mark of a Christian is genuine family love. So simple, isn't it? If we get that one down, and that's why I think Paul put this one first, All of the rest of them will just happen naturally. Because one of the other marks of a true believer, or a mark of a Christian who's living under the power of the Holy Spirit, 
is living life with passion. Love will give you a passion. When you love the Lord with all your heart, and when you love people, it will give you a passion for life. Are you missing the flair in your life? Are you missing a passion when you get up and you say, my life has meaning and purpose this morning? Start with love. It will give you a passion. And then the next mark that God gives is rejoicing in trials. When you are loving God and you know that God loves you, you can go through every trial with hope that's undaunted. When you know that God is love, and that everything that God brings into your life comes through His hand of love, you can endure it. You can be patient in tribulation. And then Paul exhorts the last fourth mark is true generosity. Generosity comes when you love God. Everything that you own belongs to Him. It is no longer yours. And you see people not as people who want to take, but people that you can be a blessing to. So Paul starts out of these marks of a Christian who is walking under the Spirit's fullness is genuine love. There's only one kind of love. That's it. And it is without duplicity. The minute you add anything to that love, the minute you add conditions to to that love. It's no longer love. The Greek word is agape. We all know that word and we, we hear it a lot. But the word agape, there's four words in the Greek New Testament for love. And agape is that sacrificial, self-denying, no personal motives involved in it. So he says genuine love or agape love is without hypocrisy. The old King James says without dissimulation. It means the exact same thing, just an old way of saying it. But hypocrisy. In the New Testament time, there were people who put on plays and drama. And if you were in that play, in that drama, the actors were often called hypocrites. Not that they were hypocritical, but it was a word that described someone who wore a mask to hide their real identity, and then they would play out the role of another person. And when we are loving, and we are really putting up a mask, and we're hiding our real thoughts, our real emotions, that is not love. Love is transparent. Love shows you who you are and it loves people where they're at and in spite of all of their faults. So that is the mark of a spirit-filled Christian. The mark of genuine love without hypocrisy. Now, irreligious people are hypocrites just as much as churchgoers. I think we all know that, don't we? In fact, Jesus said, beware of the leaven 
of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the most religious people around. The leaven of the Pharisees, Luke chapter 12, is hypocrisy. True, genuine love is without that. Love is characteristic by a dual discernment. We, getting back to Romans chapter 12, where it says, do not be conformed to this world, I'm very, very afraid that we are being molded and conformed by the world standard of love. We are being told that love is accepting, that love is tolerance, that love doesn't point out anybody's sins or faults or wrongdoings. That is not love. That's not biblical love. I want somebody to love me enough to tell me when I'm an heir. And I thank God. I thank the Lord every day that he has given me a spouse who will question me and who will pin me down because she knows I'm being duplicit. That's a good word for lying. (laughs) I didn't want to say it. But that's love, isn't it? And if you have a child, and you love that child, you want that child to abhor what is evil. And you warn, and you tell that child, avoid those things because these are the eventual consequences. If you have a friend, deceitful are the kisses of an enemy, aren't they? But faithful are the wounds of a friend because they love you. So it is characterized by this dual discernment. On the one hand, it abhors and hates what is evil and morally corrupt. Tolerance and being complicit to evil is misconstrued today in our culture as love. On the other hand, true love clings and holds tightly to what is morally pure and good. And it encourages people to embrace those things and to fill your life with those things because that's in your best interest. God did not give his commands because he was a poo-pooer on our party down here. He said, I am giving you these commands because I want you to choose life. This is the best path for your life. And I want you to have the best possible life. So choose life. Amen. 1 Corinthians 13, 6 says, Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but love rejoices in truth. Biblical love recognizes that we are a family here this morning in North Valley Bible Church. This is my home. This is my family. You are my brothers. You are my sisters. 1 John chapter. 5 and verse 1 says this whoever believes I love it, it's so simple whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ he is begotten of God born again and everyone who is begotten loves him who begot <laughs> that's kind of complicated isn't it so let's slow it down everyone who's begotten, that's you and I who do we love? we love the one that begot us our daddy, God 
So everyone who's alive in Christ, we love God and we love those who are begotten. That's you. That's our family. That's who we are as Christians. I loved what Caleb said. He's not here. I don't know where the guy went. But Jesus said this, and I'll kind of quote Caleb. It's not how much knowledge. They'll say, boy, that guy's a Christian. They will know that you are his disciples by your love one for another. And the Greek word for love here is philadelphias. Philadelphia, brotherly love. It's this familiar family type love, a kindred love. Family love is reciprocal, isn't it? It's two-way. We love one another. That means you've got to be willing to receive love. That means you've got to humble yourself. If you and I are going to receive love, we've got to acknowledge that we've got needs. And it also means that your eyes are looking on others, how you can minister and serve to them. So it's reciprocal. And we do this by honoring and the word to honor means you put weight on that other individual and then the participle tells us how we do that how do we honor people by preferring them giving them preference that's hard to do the Holy Spirit will enable you to do that so we can measure our walk with Christ very very well by that one verse I love what it says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. It says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things or his own interest, but on the interest of others. That is a definition of brotherly love. The next mark, mark number 2 of a Christian is living with passion. Let's look at this verse. Verse 11. Not lagging in diligence. So if you're going to do something, be busy about it. Be excited about it. Fervent in spirit. And then notice this participle at the end because it tells why. Serving the Lord. Boy, that, that opens your eyes up, doesn't it? Why does God want me to be lack, not lacking in diligence? Why does God want me to be excited and on fire for about what I'm doing? Why am I to be passionate? On The word fervent means to put a pot of water on coals until it boils. And the word spirit, notice that it's not capitalized. That's our spirit. Our attitudes, our thoughts, our passions, they need to be boiling. Why? Serving the Lord. If you're running out of steam, and boy, I tell you, it happens to all of us, doesn't it? Tracy knows. She hears me grumbling about how I'm just sort of running out of steam sometimes. And I'll just take Tracy, I just don't have any motivation. She says, Patrick, you got to preach in two days. You better get busy. <laughs> and sometimes I get busy because I have to. And that's no way to do God's work. 
It's no way for any of us to do God's work. But when you tell yourself you are serving the Lord Jesus, I tell you, it will make painting a house a whole lot of fun. I still haven't painted two sides of my house. (laughs) I need to get fervent about that. I'm waiting until the fervency outside cools down, though. A Christian is one who is not only reliable, but he is earnest to accomplish what they put their hands to do. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, Whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might. I don't care if, if you're a shoeshine boy or, or if, you're, if you're mucking out a, a barn somewhere. You can do it as unto the Lord and you can enjoy it and you can be rejoicing. I've had a lot of jobs that I didn't like. And I found pleasure in them when I did them as unto the Lord. Jesus said this about the fervency that he wants us to follow. He says, when a man puts his hands to the plow, he doesn't look back. Not slothful or lagging. Whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. Colossians 3.23. In the spirit, probably is referring to our human spirit, our attitudes. Fervent means a blaze or a fire, a pot that's boiling. The believer should be excited, enthusiastic about using his gifts that God has given him. And then serving the Lord tells us how and why we should be zealous. Apollos was a man who exemplified this trait. In Acts chapter 18 and verse 25 and verse 27, we find these words. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, talking about Apollos. And being fervent, same word, fervent in spirit. Apollos was zealous, Apollos was excited about what he was doing, and Apollos had a ministry at Ephesus. He was refuting people and he was teaching people, even though he didn't know Jesus yet. All he needed for for Priscilla and Aquila to come alongside and explain the gospel. He, He knew Jesus was coming, he just didn't know he was here yet and all that in his resurrection. And so when they explained that, they sent him to Achaia, or to the area of Corinth. And when he came, he spoke and taught the word of the Lord accurately. And the brethren wrote, when you go to Achaia and receive this guy. And when he got there, he exhorted the disciples to receive him. Receive Apollos, that is. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who believed through grace. For what did he do? He vigorously refuted the Jews publicly showing them from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Man, what a great guy to have in your church. Fervent in the spirit. Vigorously debating with people to persuade them to trust Jesus. Our third mark is facing trials with faith. Facing trials with faith. Verse 12. Rejoicing in hope patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. In the realm of hope, hope, and 
I'll refer to Sharon this morning. She was saying, I, I hope it's going to be better in heaven. And then she said, no, I recorrect it. I know it's going to be. But technically, Sharon was right when she said, I hope. Because in the Bible, hope means something completely different from our vernacular language here on this side of heaven. Biblical hope is the absolute certainty. Hope is the evidence of things not seen. No? Faith. Thank you. Faith is the... Well, never mind. I'm off on that one. Thank you, Tracy. Oh, well... Abraham believed in hope, right? Against all hope, because he counted God faithful who had also given him the promise. Okay, that, that, that's my verse I was looking for. <laughs> hope is expecting what God had promised. He is also able to perform it. God promised to Abraham. God promised Abraham by two immutable things. One was his character that never changes and the second one was his word because God could promise or swear by nobody greater he swore by himself so that by two immutable things we might have strong consolation who have fled to him to find hope and that hope we have as an anchor for our soul so the mark of a Christian when you're going through hard difficult times you're rejoicing in it because you have hope that God will work all things together for those who love God who are the called according to his purpose. Because God foreknew certain people and he said, I know that I will work through them just like I've done for every one of my saints. And we can know for sure we have that hope. In the realm of tribulation, what are we supposed to do? In tribulation, in that area of our life, we are to be patient. Man, that is so hard, isn't it? When you're going through tribulation, you want it fixed yesterday. I'm that way. When you have health problems, it's hard to be patient. When you have people that are difficult in your life. It's hard to be patient with them. This is the mark of a spirit-filled person. The word patience is a compound word. The first part of that word is hupo, which means to be under. A hupopotamus lives under the water. A hupodermic needle goes under the skin. So hupo means under. Meno means to remain or to abide. And so the really idea of patient means that you are willing to submit and you are going to abide and you're going to remain under this trial. And you're going to do it rejoicing in hope. Patient during those tribulations. The word for tribulation literally means pressure or a weight that comes from the outside. So metaphorically, it means stress that comes upon us mentally, spiritually, and emotionally. And why are we to be patient? Because when you and I try to get out of that trial in an ungodly way, when we try to fix it ourselves, we mess things up, and we miss all what God is trying to do in us. My brethren, 
Count it all joy when you fall into diverse testings, knowing that the trying of your faith produces hupomeno, the ability to hang in there. But let patience have its perfecting work in you, that you might be entire, lacking nothing. You think about the things that you have really learned biblically, and I bet you most of them have come through hard knocks and endurance. So we are to be rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, and lastly, continuing steadfast in prayer. That's the secret of it all right there. Isn't that wonderful? Paul, by the Holy Spirit, says, I want you to rejoice in hope. I don't know how to do that. I want you to be patient in tribulation. I don't know how to do that. Then he says, this is how you do it. You continue in prayer. I walked out of the house this morning, and I was anxious again. And my wife said, you're sinning. (laughs) I said, how do I fix it? She said, start praying. (laughs) It's pretty simple, isn't it? You continue in prayer. And you continue in prayer. And you continue in prayer. That word is used in Luke chapter 10. I was reading it this morning. God is so good. I didn't even have this as an illustration. I'm reading in Luke chapter 10. And there was a servant of centurion who waited on him continually. Same Greek word. The idea is that servant was always, always ready at disposal. And that's the way you and I should be in our prayer lives. Always ready to turn to God no matter what is going on. At the drop of a hat, ready to turn to God. Something bad happens that you weren't expecting it. I'm not going to rejoice in hope right now. I'm not going to be patient in this thing. No, what do you do? You start praying right then. And then God will give you the rejoicing heart. He will give you that, 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 um, that little nudge that you need to be patient. So prayer is the key to this rejoicing and looking at tribulations with patience. Our last mark of a Christian, of a Christian spirit-filled walking, the last mark is generosity. Verse 13, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. The word distributing I'm not sure how other translations have it, but the Greek word is koinonia, or koinoneo. It's actually a verb, but the verb koinonia is often translated fellowship. But the basic idea of koinonia is that you hold loosely to everything that you have, and you are willing to share it and give it to anybody else. So real fellowship is giving and taking. And Paul exhorts us here to be fellowshipping, distributing, looking at everything. The the other idea of the word koinonia is to hold in common. We have got to have the idea in our Christian minds, in our Christian life, that my possessions, my blessings are simply a conduit 
that God, you have entrusted them to me, and I am a steward of what belongs to God's so that I can then dispense it to those who have needs. Now that takes wisdom, doesn't it? Because we don't want to endorse someone's bad habits or unfrugality. But generally speaking, when we can meet a need without endorsing a bad habit, as believers, we need to be looking for those opportunities, carrying the burden with others. Others' needs become our needs, our responsibilities to meet them, because there's a oneness in the family of Christ. We meet those needs when it's within our power, and, within, and secondly, when, it, when it's within their best interest. Because sometimes it's not always in their best interest just to give a handout or to bail people out. Pursue hospitality. Now, I think of myself as a hospitable person. But that's not what this is really getting at. The word, let me read it to you. The New King James says, given to hospitality. The word translated given is dioko. Dioko is often translated to persecute someone. So that's the negative aspect of this verb. The positive side of dioko means that you actively pursue someone that you can be a blessing to. So it's not just saying, hey, I'm coming through. Can I sleep in your bed? No, you go out and you are looking for people that you can actually help. That was the need in the New Testament era, and that's why Paul is writing this, but it's no, it's no different today. The word for, for uh, hospitality, and you'll know this word, and I'll kind of help you. It's phileo zena. We've heard of xenophobia, haven't we? That's the fear of somebody who's different. But philozenia, we are to actively pursue people that are different from you and I so that we can show them the love of Christ. That is the mark of a Christian. The guy who rubs you the wrong way and you go out of your way to, to befriend him. Or somebody that just that, that you know is going to need something from you and you go and pursue that person to be a blessing to them. That is the mark of a spirit-filled believer, is true, generous spirit. So now it comes for our test. We're going to do some grading here. Let's begin with genuine love. So just some questions that we can ask ourselves. How sacrificial is your love? Do we love only when it's convenient and when it's comfortable? That's not love. Second, how sincere are you in serving others? Do you love someone enough to correct them? Do we see the body of Christ as our family? Our second mark, are we passionate about the Christian life? Are we eager to volunteer your time, your talents, and your resources to be a blessing to the body of Christ? Are you eager? Do you look forward to alone time with God? Is that what you look forward to? Jeremiah said it like this. Your word has become the joy and rejoicing of my heart. The whole, if it's not, you can correct that. Not by striving harder. 
but by surrendering to the Holy Spirit. Number three, do you see your spiritual assignments all the way through to the end? That's someone who's fervent in spirit, earnest and diligent in business. Our third mark, how well do we do during trials? Are you rejoicing when you face something that's difficult because you have hope that God is going to bless this for his good and for your good and his glory? Are you patient? Do you stay encouraged when you don't experience immediate results? Are you still encouraged when you don't see the immediate results? Do you feel like giving in? That's a good indicator that we need to work on that area. Is your reaction when you find a trial, is your reaction to fret? Mine is often. Is it to complain? Is it to feel despair or self-pity? Or is your reaction to pray? Our fourth mark, generosity. When you talk with someone, how thoughtful are you about asking about their needs rather than dumping all your problems on them? Do you actively look for ways that you can serve others with your abundance and your resources? How willing are you to share with people who are different from you that you naturally just wouldn't congeal with? Identify some mark this week is what I want you to do. Look at your life. Look at these verses. Come up with a simple plan to make an improvement maybe just in one of these areas. Maybe it's generosity. Maybe it's love. Maybe it's the fervent and the passion. Maybe you need to refocus your idea of the, the trial that you're going through. But pick one of these. Ask someone in this church body to hold you accountable or a spouse. Share with them what you want to work on. My last question is, would an outside observer, someone who's not a Christian, looking at these four areas in your life, would they be able to conclude that you are a follower of Jesus? Why or why not? Let's close with prayer. Father, God, thank you for your word. Thank you that little tiny phrases are packed with so much power that the Holy Spirit wants us to look at our lives, to be transformed and renew ourselves daily. God, thank you for the Holy Spirit that makes all of this possible. Thank you so much, Jesus, for 1 John 1, 9. Thank you, Lord, that you are not done working on any of us until we reach glory. Help us, God, to show the marks of spirit-filled people. We pray this.